Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, the 28th of February. So much news to bring you today, including a big interview with Chanel Contos. She was the Sydney former private school student who launched a massive campaign last year to have better consent training in high schools. And she has achieved so much in the last year. There will now be nationwide consent training in the national curriculum. We'll ask how that's going to work. Will we see more videos like the milkshake video? I'm not sure if you remember that. Um, We'll talk about that. And just her journey as an individual who stood up and has made such a huge difference in this really important space. First, massive news to bring you on the Queensland floods and the situation in Ukraine. And I'm joined by Katrina Blouse for today's headlines. Well, first, let's go to the situation in Ukraine. And Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered his military to put their nuclear forces on high alert as the war enters its fourth day. And Ukrainian leaders have agreed to talks with a Russian delegation. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was refusing to meet the delegation in Belarus, where the talks were originally proposed, because Belarus have sided with Russia and allowed them to launch their attack from there. But now the Ukraine president says they've agreed to talks somewhere near the Pripyat River on the border after assurance from the Belarusians that all planes, helicopters and missiles stationed in that area will remain on the ground. So in a message via his Telegram channel, he said, I will say, frankly, I don't really believe in the outcome of this meeting, but let them try to make sure that no citizen of Ukraine has any doubt that I, as president, did not try to stop the war. Yeah, so that's Zelensky there. Meanwhile, his foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, has said that the nuclear warning from Russia is actually a tactic designed to add additional pressure to these negotiations that are going to happen. We see this announcement, this order, as an attempt to raise stakes and to put additional pressure on the Ukrainian delegation. But we will not give in to this pressure. What we are ready to discuss is how to stop the war. I think any time you mention nuclear weapons, that is certainly an effective way to raise the stakes. Uh, the most intense fighting appears to be around the two most popular cities of Kiev and Kharkiv, which are so far are still under Ukrainian control. Ukraine say they have taken out 4,300 Russian troops, but that number can't be verified. It's believed that more than 360,000 people have fled Ukraine uh, to Poland, Hungary and Romania. That's according to the UNHCR. 90% of the refugees entering Poland have places to go, such as homes of friends and family, but the remainder are seeking help at reception centres. Men under the age of 60 actually cannot leave Ukraine. Uh, Many of them are involved in defending the country. And just a moment ago, we spoke to Ukrainian woman Helena Budivska. She's an academic and a mum. She fled the northwest suburbs of Kiev to the safer western part of the country. And here's how she described the fighting there in her home suburb, where local forces have kept the Russians from taking control. As we see our army, despite being less equipped, yeah, it is on its homeland. You know what you are fighting for. That is why they are very motivated and they do things which are really courageous. And yeah, they uh, they fight like lions. And yeah, we we are thankful to them and hope that 
We will <laughs> win in this absolutely unnecessary and awful war. Yeah, you can hear in her voice just how stressful this situation is. Mm, you really can. And she also told us uh, off air, Tom, that she is in the third trimester of her pregnancy. So imagine that. You've got a three-year-old and you're on the run and mm. you're pregnant. A hugely stressful time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a look at the reaction to this conflict from around the world. Well, the big news is that several Russian banks will be expelled from SWIFT. That is the main global payment system used by banks to make cross-border money transfers. We will stop Putin from using his war chest. We will paralyze the assets of Russia's central bank. This will freeze its transactions. That's the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. So that is a, a quite a big step which could have far-reaching impacts on Russia. That came in a joint statement from the EU, the UK, the US and Canada. Um, They're also um, facing flight bans right across the EU. Yeah, Germany has also announced they'll join a number of other EU countries in supplying weapons to Ukraine. Uh, 1,000 anti-tank weapons, 500 Stinger surface-to-air missiles. This is a big step from Germany because it's actually a a bit of a change in a long-running weapons policy that was very restrictive after World War II. And here in Australia, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, has said that we will now work with NATO to deliver weapons. We'll be supporting that effort after previously saying that we'd only commit non-lethal aid. So that's an interesting change of position there. We'll be seeking to provide whatever support we can for lethal aid through our NATO partners. So as for other things that are being done, as yet there is no agreement on ending imports of Russian gas and oil, but BP is set to offload its 19 or nearly 20% stake in Russian state-owned oil firm Rosneft. The big one is the SWIFT payments, which could really cripple the Russian economy. There's also restrictions on their central bank So that's going to be really interesting to see how much that impacts Russia and if it changes, Mm. I guess, the level of support for Vladimir Putin and puts pressure on him domestically. And I guess, as we mentioned at the start, these negotiations, um, which could happen as soon as today, it's night time in the Ukraine as we record this, but as they wake up, those uh, negotiations will be very interesting to keep an eye on. Back home now and parts of Brisbane's CBD and hundreds of homes are underwater, but residents are being told the worst of the flooding is still on its way. So you've been reporting on this all weekend, Katrina. What's it been like out and about around Brisbane? Oh, it's been unbelievable. So I moved to Brisbane just before the 2011 floods Mm. hit and it feels like the same thing all over again. So we've had what's been referred to as a rain bomb Mm. lashing all of southeast Queensland over the last three days. So far, sadly, six people have died in flood water. Thousands of residents in 140 suburbs across Brisbane are now on notice to evacuate. But that peak, as I said, isn't expected until this morning. Yeah, so we're hearing this phrase, blue sky flooding, and this is this dangerous moment where you think it's all over because the rain stopped, but the danger still lies ahead. Yeah, and uh, I have to say, we've we've witnessed some intense rescues. So a man in a, a houseboat yesterday at Howard Smith Wharves, which a lot of people who come to Brisbane and go visit the bars and restaurants at Howard Smith Wharves will be familiar with, uh, he actually um, got sucked out of his houseboat and went downstream and was pulled out of the river. The river is just moving incredibly quickly and I've been reporting by it over the weekend and we had to keep moving our gear away from the edge mm. because it 
just kept rising and rising. Um, and there are streets. I live very close to the city and there are streets all around me at the moment which are completely closed. Uh, so schools are going to be closed today. Trains cancelled. Brisbane and Gold Coast residents have been told to work from home. And that latest flood peak at four metres is super close to one of the city's worst ever floods back in 2011. Okay, so the rain is going to move south. It's a slow-moving storm system. It's now moving towards Lismore, Byron, Ballina, Dorigo, um, which will be bracing for flooding today. How do you see things panning out there further south? Well, this system, our Premier in Queensland has compared it to cyclone conditions. The thing about it which people in the Weather Bureau couldn't even predict was how slow moving it has been and just when you think it's over you get hit by another storm. So I really feel for people in northern New South Wales, hopefully the system won't hang around for as long as it has in Queensland, but it's going to be a bit of a waiting game in the next few days. Absolutely. All right. in just a moment Chanel Contos. So when you think about Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, you realise that last year, Katrina, was a massive year for young women standing up for change when it comes to sexual assault. I definitely feel that way. It was incredible. Not only were they able to use their voices to be heard in the highest rooms of power in the country, but the change that they were able to implement in such a short space of time has been breathtaking. Yeah, well, in particular, the third name that really comes to mind is Chanel Contos, who we're interviewing today, and she has achieved something very tangible in the Mm. last year. Education Minister's She got them all to agree somehow to bring in holistic, age-appropriate consent education right around Australia. It's going to be in the national curriculum from next year. So this is going to start some really big conversations, not just in the classroom, but at homes about sexual education, power imbalances, toxic masculinity. This could have lasting impacts for generations if it is done right. Yeah, if it's done right. So let's catch up with Chanel to see what the last year's been like and what she thinks will be critical for this plan to actually have an impact. Chanel, thanks so much for joining us. Let's go back to one year ago when you started this journey, at least on the public level. I know privately it had been a longer journey, but back to one year ago when you really went public with this demanding better consent education How did this start for you and what did you expect would happen? Uh, It started with an Instagram poll, actually. I just posted to my direct following asking, have you or has anyone close to you ever been sexually assaulted by someone who went to an all-boys school in Sydney? And I guess I expected kind of a handful of responses. My plan was to collect up to 50 max testimonies and take these to principles of local schools demanding better consent education, but just so many people got behind it and so many people posted testimonies that it just kind of kept going, levelling up until eventually working on the federal curriculum. So you've since been studying a master's degree in London. How did you actually manage that campaign that you sparked that kind of had a snowball effect? Um, It was quite stressful because I was working Sydney hours on the campaign and then London hours on the Masters and I would have like a three-hour nap every afternoon, but there was still very little sleep going on. (laughs) 
Yeah, so I guess when did it sort of change in your mind? You first, I guess, started getting way more testimonies than you expected. How did you sort of change your thinking and realize that this could become a much bigger, more powerful campaign that might someday end up actually changing the whole national curriculum, not just the culture in the schools in in your part of Sydney? It was actually quite quickly. So like my first Instagram poll was about Sydney. And then by the time I moved it on to a Google form and then launched a website, the language had already changed to, you know, petition for consent education in Australia because instantly I was getting testimonies and messages saying that this is relevant to people from all over Australia. Scott Morrison has been accused of being tone deaf when it comes to issues concerning women. You you had a meeting with the Prime Minister. How did you find him and, and was he receptive to this? He was really receptive to it. I, I basically spoke pretty much the whole meeting. But he listened. Yeah, he listened. Yeah, he listened. I had a quite specific ask from him to conduct a national survey of 150,000 Australian school students. And I guess I'm just really hoping that the meeting kind of turns into a tangible result, which would be the funding for that. I know Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame have spoken about the unexpected pressure that they've found being in the public spotlight and being an advocate for so many voices. How have you found it? I think it can be stressful sometimes, especially in social situations, because I feel like a lot of people kind of see me as someone they can disclose sexual assault to Mm. and that be safe with me, which of course it is, but it can also be very jarring sometimes. But I feel like I definitely haven't had the same sort of pressure as Brittany and Grace. And I've also been removed from everything a lot because I've been in London the whole time, which I think has helped. But I think just sticking to like the very specific goal and kind of working with anyone who can help make this happen as long as it's issue focused has helped because I haven't really widened my scope much. So on a campaign level, you've achieved so much to meet all those education ministers and get them to actually agree on something is amazing. But what this will really hang on is whether you are able to help implement something that changes behaviour, that changes the way we educate people. And then ultimately what happens in teenage parties or bedrooms or or wherever this kind of interaction happens, what are the foundational things that we need to teach young people so that they properly understand consent and don't end up crossing the line with their friends? Yeah, so first we need to teach the legalities around consent and sexual assault, which differ in every state and territory, but talking about things that oral sex can be sexual assault or, you know, digital penetration. Any like it's not just the stereotypical kind of notion of what sex looks like, which is usually perpetrated by a stranger. Then I think empathy is essentially what needs to be taught at heart. I know people say that there's a grey area with consent and blah blah blah. But I mean if someone understands body language and if someone has the other person's enjoyment at the center of every sexual interaction, then it wouldn't be a problem. But there's, of course, so many nuances and students need to understand concepts such as gender and how power structures come into play with age and authority figures. And I think coercion is another massive one, understanding sexual coercion and what that means, what that looks like, what that really sounds like. 
because that's the most common way that someone will perpetrate sexual assault. They'll use words rather than actions. And I feel that's really misunderstood in youth. And then also addressing porn literacy skills, because we have quite a big issue in our society right now where pornography has become sex education for you know most of the younger generations so having strong discourse coming the other way to talk about the fact that oh no consent was shown in that and that's an unrealistic expectation of what sex looks like the first time and many times after that and ultimately lifting taboos as well just these conversations can be had with friends in the classroom and at home in a safe way. Now, your master's looked at the dynamics of single-sex schools and you went to Kambala, which is pretty exclusive, I would say, um, female single-sex school in Sydney. What do you think about single-sex schools on reflection and after hearing so many people's stories? Do you think they are particularly bad environments for attitudes towards sex? Do you think we should even have single-sex schools? There's definitely reason to have single-sex schools, especially with certain cultures and norms. However, I feel like in environments where boys and girls mix freely in every other aspect of life, single-sex schools don't make much sense to me personally. I think it's quite likely Australia will follow the trend of the UK over the next 50 years where pretty much most single-sex schools became co-ed over a time period since like the 70s. I think we will see that happen in Australia, except the kind of elite of the elite usually. I personally love school. I had so, so, so much fun at school and I loved being around (laughs) girls all the time. But my dissertation, I guess, argued that single-sex institutions heighten these sort of issues for a few reasons, one of which is the fact that you're so removed from the opposite sex in day-to-day activity that it's very hard to see them as friends and therefore you only kind of view them as sexual objects but that goes both ways for both boys and girls the other thing is these environments allow negative behaviors such as toxic versions of masculinity to flourish in boys schools and then the final thing which is probably the most prominent thing in place into the toxic masculinity thing as well is that due to the school system in australia single sex schools especially elite single sex schools tend to have mostly wealthy students in them and with wealth comes entitlement. Entitlement is the number one reason that someone will sexually assault someone. So we kind of have this cross-section of the entitlement that comes with being boy or man intersected with the entitlement of wealth and you're not really used to accountability and stuff like that. And that's kind of why these things can flourish in those schools more so than others. One year on, how do you feel about what you've achieved? To us, it seems quite amazing. I feel like I'm still in a little bit of shock. I haven't really processed it yet. I've had like a few times throughout the year when something big has happened and then like a few days later I have this moment of like crying or like finally appreciating or releasing, but that yeah. hasn't happened yet since announcement, but I think it will soon. So that was Chanel Contos. Interesting the work she's done on single-sex schools, having come from Kambala herself. To me, the space that we're in now, it just feels like single-sex education is becoming quite archaic and just irrelevant to the way society actually operates. And I get that they've done studies that show that girls in particular can thrive especially in those maths and science classrooms when they don't have boys there. But I just think it's about more than academic achievement, surely. It's also about turning out healthy, well-rounded individuals that have a modern view of of what it's like to operate in a society where both boys and girls and all flavours of the rainbow are present. 
Listener.